journalists and various community groups have put up their own drones and their own balloons to measure air quality, uh, to measure water quality, because they don't believe the data of what they're being told by the government bodies is accurate, so they're going and doing it themselves. How horrified parents of seeing pictures of their babies online, and you, you're not allowed to be ignorant anymore. You've got to understand that you are effectively connecting a device to the web. Therefore, it's open to anybody else that's on the web. Hi, I'm Kate Golden at the Walkley Foundation, and this is the Walkley Talks podcast. Now imagine, you get up in the morning, you open your blinds with a voice command. You have your house read you the headlines. This is possible now. We are basically living in the future. It's the internet of things, where all the things around us are connected and smart and sending data to each other or the cloud. It's transformed industries like agriculture and energy, and it has seeped into our lives through Fitbits and Apple Watches. Those of us who make media or consume it need to get ready for a world where our every move can generate data. It will change how we find stories and how we tell them. At our last Future Friday, we brought in Stuart Waite to guide us in this new world. He's a digital transformation expert, a startup consultant, and an investor in the Internet of Things. But he also, until recently, was a News Corp executive, so he gets the media world too. Michael Yanda, who's a senior digital business reporter at the ABC, interviewed him. He starts by asking just what the Internet of Things is and what impact it's had on industry. I do some mentoring at the CSIRO, and, and they have gone as far as putting sensors on the back of bees, very, very small, as you can imagine, and they, they track the, you know, the movements of the beehives and where they go and actually get their, their honey, etc. And that knowledge is, is amazing. And as a result of that, they can then you know, work out what's the best way to, to run a hive and, and how to get honey from that hive. There's another unit at CSIRO that's working on fruit fly detection. So they have connected fruit fly traps that they are now rolling out, where um, one of the biggest challenges they have around a fruit fly, and I didn't know this, but this is a fantastic piece of um, you know, useful data when you're going to a dinner party, is that um, most fruit flies are okay. They don't really create an issue. There are, however, there are particular types of fruit flies that are very difficult to detect um, without very, very close inspection that are very, very bad. And there are certain aspects of Australia where you must never have a fruit fly. If you do, it shuts down the entire industry overnight. They have very, very good alarming systems to make sure that you know, that doesn't happen. What these guys have invented is basically some camera alerting technology that can take a very, very high-res photo of a, of a fly as it comes into the trap and send that through the cloud back to an analysis system and say, that's a good one, don't worry about it, that's a bad one. And the traditional method of doing that is manual inspection. Literally, a guy in a car driving to every trap in Australia, of which there are thousands, to see whether there's a fruit fly or not. And I asked the guy, I said, so how many fruit flies, bad ones, have you detected in kind of the last 10 years? He said, do you want the honest answer? I went, yeah, sure, I want the honest answer. He said, one, one, they found one. But they've had a guy or a team of guys checking those traps for 10 years to find one. Now they can do it with technology. But again, think about that from the perspective of that's data they're collecting for the purposes of fruit flies. Imagine if you then match that with the amount of orange trees in South Australia that are growing oranges or the amount of vines in the Barossa, and suddenly you start to have a massive wealth of data that is or isn't available, depending on how you know, get access to it, that you can tell amazing stories around. Right? Yeah, well, I mean, even that is pretty amazing rural or science story, you know, one bad fruit fly in a decade. But 
you mentioned the consumer area, and that's probably where we're more interested. In, you know, telling stories about people—that's you know the mainstay of most journalists beyond those sort of specialist rounds. Where do you see the Internet of Things changing the way we gather data and the availability of data data to tell these stories about people? So, you think about sensors everywhere. You got your Fitbits and your Apple Watches. In my house, I have the Amazon Alexa here, which is sitting in front of you. This little device here is called a Pod Tracker. That is normally hanging around my dog's neck. Now, that's collecting data on his GPS position anywhere in the world. Um, it measures his uh, how many steps he takes. It measures how fast he runs when I take him to the park. It then maps it on top of Google Maps, so I know exactly where he's run and kind of directions and how he's played. And there's a newer version coming out soon, which will connect to a, a smart dog bowl, which will then allow me to measure how much food he's eaten, how much water he's drunk, and kind of measure the whole nutritional intake of, of my dog, which then I could make available to his vet and um, have a complete cycle. So there are kind of better devices out there for dogs than there are for humans at the moment, you could argue. Um, well, it makes the um, lost dog sign pretty well, that's why I bought it, because I was fearful that he'd just run off one day. So, But now it's just funny, because I sit down the park with my phone, you know, in real time, watching how fast he's running and tracking it on Google Maps. So you're not actually looking at your dog anymore. No, no. Well, I know where he is anyway, right? <laughs> looking at goes, oh, he's down there somewhere. And the the Amazon Echo, I mentioned that in the article that I wrote. I use this every day to tell me the news. So, the I have connected cameras. I have a connected alarm system from my phone here. I can turn my alarm on and off. I can change the lighting system inside the house. I can turn music on or off. Um, there are many other smart devices like ovens, kitchens, kettles. Uh, fridges, hot plates, you name it, all of these things are connected now. But you've got to ask why. I mean, I still don't understand why most of those things would be connected. It doesn't really make sense to me. But, you know, alarm systems, camera systems, security, um, those, those things are, are very prevalent. Um, so I think, you know, you, you start to think about what is the smart home of the future, what is the smart environment. But from my perspective, I always look at what is the, what is the journey, the user journey of that experience. What's the use case as we talk in techie speak? If I wake up in the morning, what happens next? You know, these devices can tell me what the weather is, what the journey time is to work, whether I should take a bus or take the train or drive the car, get a bicycle, walk. It'll tell me exactly what's going on in real time. There's a plug-in to the Amazon Echo where you can ask it what, what fashion you should wear today based upon current trends and, you know, what the weather's like and what meetings you're going to. I plug my calendar into that. And then you can order it online. Then you can order it. You can order flowers. You can order cinema tickets. You can do all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's... It basically is a voice interface to the entire web, but what's behind it is, is an AI. It's a, an artificial intelligent machine that's very, very clever and learns as it goes. So this kind of leads on to the more interesting debate around the consumer IoT is what, what's powering this stuff. So the three biggest proponents here right now is Amazon has a lead because of this device and others they've created. Google's catching up fast. They've just launched a device called Google Home, which is a direct copy of that, which is powered by Google Assistant, which is arguably a better AI system than this one. Um, Apple has released the Apple Home Kit. There are devices coming where they want to participate in that. You could argue that those three guys are eventually going to own the entire home. Everybody else who's operating in home automation is plugging into those guys somewhere. And really what they're going to own is they're going to own the AI piece, the, the, the data that sits behind it. Um, so. And what's more interesting, I suppose, is that when you start to have those connected journeys, the home, the car, the office, all of those things, you're connected the whole time, not only to your phone, but through the environments in which you operate. And, and that's where, I guess, it goes from news gathering to also news and information and media distribution, yeah. because 
these are going to be the devices through which you live. So, I mean, how, what are news organisations sort of doing already and, and what are they looking at in terms of distributing content and, and new content on yeah. these platforms? So the biggest challenge that I saw when I was at, at News, and I left there in December last year, but there was a dawning realisation that, that mobile was taking over the world and that arguably they were a bit late to that realisation, but they got there pretty quickly. But really it was a conversation about the, the channels to market or the amount of devices by which you can consume their content. Really. Well, in, interesting, one of the most nominated uh, stories from the Australian for the War Police this year is actually uh, in large part a podcast, uh, an audio storytelling from a, a newspaper organisation. So Yeah, and then we had to kind of drag them kicking and screaming into that world as well. Um, because when you, you talk about decades of tradition, decades of working, the, the whole process of how a newsroom was working at, at News Corp was orientated around getting a newspaper out. So even adding the website to it was a, was a pain that they didn't want to you know, overcome. Then they had mobile website, mobile apps, and then we added dedicated iPad apps, and then we were posting to Facebook pages and Google's accelerated pages, and, and then we did Snapchat app uh, products, and then you know, we asked them to tweet 57 times a day. And of course, you know, most of them kind of freaked out at that. It was just, they just weren't set up to, to be successful. And to be honest, the biggest, the biggest challenge that News Corp overcame as part of that was in preparing their technology platforms to adapt to the changing needs of the marketplace. So they have now content APIs and all that sort of capability where they can take their content and pretty much distribute it wherever they need to in the format that they need to. Now that took many years and many millions of dollars of investment to do that and that sets them up for a pretty solid future for the distribution of their content. But it's still overwhelmingly challenging when you say to a journalist, okay, you cannot wait to publish this article till midnight because that's when the newspaper, you know... Um, has to be printed. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, when I first got there, there was nothing new put on the Australian website until midnight and then they published all the stories at midnight when absolutely no one in Australia is writing right, it. Which we said, so why do you do that? Well, that's when the, the embargo comes off for the print edition. Oh, okay, good. How many people are online in Australia at midnight? Yeah, not many. Okay, good. That seems like a pretty wasted effort. Um, and then when they do log in at 8 o'clock in the morning, the story looks like it's eight hours old. Which it was. Yeah. And then well, the, the big right, one on that one was... really the, 12 or Yeah, well, that's right, because they'd actually probably. written at 6 p.m. the night yeah. before. Um, the more interesting story there is that the, the Daily Telegraph would get all of their stories copied by the papers in in UK. So we said to them, so when you publish all these stories at midnight, what time is it in the UK? Oh, about midday? All oh, right, good. And you could see this dawning realisation come across the journalists. Oh, right. So they've got like 12 hours to rewrite all of our stories before we even wake up. Yep. And they take all the traffic. So that was happening systematic. By the time... Australia woke up, all of the UK papers, the Daily Mail, those guys, had all the traffic, had all the search indexing, and, uh, and the guys who wrote the original article here got nothing. So they had to change that. Now what, what the Internet of Things does, or connected devices do, is that blows that up again. It's the next obvious step in that kind of dis distribution of content. If you think about, you wake up in the morning, first thing you do is you check your phone, the radio's on, I ask Alexa what the, what the weather is, you know, tell me the news. She reads out the BBC news to me and then a whole heap of other things. I get Wall Street Journal, I've got Spotify plugged in, I can play some music, whatever I want to do. But at some point I want to leave the house and continue my journey. I might get on the bus and then I'm back on the phone. I might get in the car. Every car in Australia from next year will have Apple Play or 
or Google or Android car in them. So your phone just automatically connects and all of a sudden you've got Apple in your car or you've got Google in your car. So you can see that that connected journey is getting easier and easier from the perspective of the technology that underpins it. But what a journalist going to do to be able to tell that, that story from when I wake up to when I get to the office and then I'm moving from device to device each time. Well, and this is uh, getting into one of the areas that I'm quite excited about working at a broadcasting organisation and, and to me, you know, I, I think audio is one of, is still the best storytelling format because it's the beautiful <laughs> compromise between having real voices of the, the people you're speaking to and the talent you're interviewing but not having the logistical constraints and artificiality of television. Um, but it is also a format that's uniquely suited to this uh, evolving environment where the internet and news and content and media follows you everywhere. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, when I first got the, the Echo, I swore I'd never talk to anything in my house, but now I do. I just, it, you just have a cultural shift. Um, what's interesting about, about these sorts of devices is that they're listening all the time. It's always on. Now, there's a bit of a debate raging in the, in the tech circles, but it, this device particularly is, learn, is listening for the, for the keyword. It's listening for Alexa. Um, Google's going to be listening for OK Google. Um, Siri listens for Hey Siri. But these devices are always on. They're always sending packets of data back to the cloud. So these, and this is a learning device. I mean, Amazon was very, very open about what this was about. There's three or four million of these things in market, mostly in the US right now. And every single time somebody asks Alexa a question, it goes and adds more value to the database, the AI system they built behind it. So the more times somebody asks, you know, who is Barack Obama, the more accurate it gets in how it responds. Um, these systems are there today. And so there's a real challenge, I think, for, for journalists in firstly understanding how these systems work, the entire end-to-end -end ecosystem of how this data is actually collected. Then there's a challenge for what, how you access that and what you can do with that. And then there's a, there's a challenge in how do you interpret it because there's an overwhelming amount of data being collected. It's not enough just to kind of get access to it and publish it. What are you gonna, how are you going to interpret that? How are you going to access the stuff that actually matters? Um, yeah, just because people are asking about Barack Obama, I mean, it could tell you that they don't know who he is, yeah. that he's very popular, or that he's very unpopular. Yeah. Well, that, that happened when um, there were a lot of journalists looking at Google Trends when it first came out. There was um, this little, I think it was a little side project Google thing that they created, which um, was just putting a nice little graphical user interface to how many people were searching for things on, on the web, and what was the most popular search terms. And then what we found was that there were journalists writing stories about Google Trends. And I was like, well, hang on a second, that's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're basically taking Google's word for it that this is the most important thing in the world right now, so you'll just write about that by clicking on a Google link. There was a lot of interesting stuff during the financial crisis around search terms and, you know, bank runs and, and things like that. So, yeah. But as you say, uh, if enough media organisations jump on it and you've got all these stories online, of course, the figures just keep going up and up. That's right, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how... The, home, the smarter home develops. Um, I think, as you said, their voice uh, audio is a particularly interesting interface for the home. It's very natural. If everybody in the home's got a smartphone, that's a very individual thing. You don't want to be sort of controlling stuff because you're going to constantly be yelling at one another saying, turn the lights up, turn the lights down. Um, and so it'll be, there are already you know, homes in the US where they're buying multiples of this. Amazon's got a, a smaller version of this where you put you know, a dozen of them around your home and the whole idea is you can just talk to them about anything and integrate with open up the blinds and all this sort of stuff. So um, the, the key point is there that 
there is a lot of value that can be brought to you from these devices, but what's happening to the data and what is the, the privacy and security around that, which I think is a, an amazing opportunity for the media to get on to that particular topic. It's one area that's not really covered very well in Australia. We tend to be um, reactive to those types of issues or completely ignorant and go, that's, that's, that's okay, that's something that happened in America, it's not going to happen here. Yeah, um, I, th I think there was a study out today showing where something like the, the 12th worst location right. for internet security in the world. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all connected. So I can be anywhere in the world and turn my home alarm on and off. I, I just, you know, I was traveling in the US earlier this year. I was routinely logging into my cameras that I have at home just to see how, how things were. Um, I get alerted if something goes on with, if one of the, my sliding doors are opened, I get a ping on my phone. It doesn't matter where I am in the world, my sliding doors are connected to the web. I did something a little bit, it was a bit weird, it felt like a voyeur at one point, but I, we were over in, over in the US, completely different time zone. I logged in and my parents were at my house, they were house sitting, and um, they were out the back having a barbecue with some of my cousins. And um, I was watching them from a camera, listening <laughs> into the conversation, and I was in San Francisco. And eventually I put it on voice and went, hello, and you kind of see them do this, like, where did that sound come from? I, I had to kind of let them know that I was looking at them at that particular time. Now that's my house and it's my camera and I've got access to it, so it's, you know, it's my data. But um, these, these sensors and these devices that are readily available wherever you want, if you want to get them, Michael and I talked about this the other day, if you wanted to, as a journalist, if you wanted to know whether somebody was coming and going from their house, you could, theoretically, put a sensor outside their house that simply measured whether they left the front door or not. And you could put that on public property, you could, you know, you could probably put you know, cameras at, at tiny things. And they're always on. Uh, they don't need, you know, they've got battery power, they last a long time. There's a whole heap of things that you could do to capture the data you want in order to tell the story you want. There's some stories in China and also in the US where journalists and various community groups have put up their own drones and their own balloons to measure air quality, uh, to measure water quality, because they don't believe the data of what they're being told by the government bodies is accurate, so they're going and doing it themselves. And that kind of makes sense, right? Journalists have been doing that for decades, wearing out their shoes, going and asking lots of people. Now, you can put the sensors in the water yourself and come to your own conclusion. But what that does is it asks a really big question is, what are your capabilities to do that? Sure, you can go and buy a water quality sensor at um, JCAR Electronics in the middle of Sydney, but when you put that in the water, what next? You know, the, the information you learn from that, um, how are you qualified to interpret that? How are you qualified to you know, do something with that data that makes sense for the public interest? Um, what privacy provisions are you breaking? What security issues are, do you need to overcome? These are really interesting challenges. And then there's the flip side of all this too, because let's say you're a, a, an investigative journalist, like our a, a fellow trustee, Kate McClymont, who's, you know, pissed off some pretty powerful people over the years with the resources to, you know, um, monitor her or, you know, it, it does pose risks uh, both not just from governments now but in the private sector that your sources may be compromised because of people hacking your data or monitoring you in ways that wasn't, you know, just weren't possible 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I guess are journalists taking these challenges seriously enough? I think some are, but I think that the, the barrier to kind of entry to play in this space is, is substantial. I mean, I struggle myself and I kind of do this all day. You know, to, 
there's a there's a search engine on the website called on the on the web called Shodan. I recommend you go and have a look at it. It's a bit frightening, and it's a website that's been up for a number of years now. But what it does is it allows you to search the world for effect, effectively unsecured Internet of Things devices. So you can run a search for webcams in Australia, and it will tell you all of the ones that it believes are unsecure. It'll give you their IP address, and it'll tell you what's actually securely uh, wrong with that particular device. Now that has led to you know, a kind of snowball effect of people using that information for the wrong reason uh, currently, which is to do these kind of IoT botnets that are then taking down the web, which has happened numerous times in the last few weeks. But that, that's, those resources are there. There are, and that's kind of a bit on the darknet side, but the reason they did the Shodan search engine is to kind of raise the profile of the fact that here are all of these things that are connected to the web yeah, could that be are not your, traditional. Your baby camera. Exactly, and they're the ones that came to the fore first, right? When horrified parents are seeing pictures of their babies online, to me that's a, that's a joint responsibility between the manufacturer of the device and the parents. And you, you're not allowed to be ignorant anymore. You've got to understand that you are effectively connecting a device to the web. Therefore, it's open to anybody else that's on the web unless you secure it. And this is what we're sort of forgetting now too because a lot of people, you know, have got in this habit of taping over their webcams on their computers or tablets because they can be hacked and hijacked, but they may not realise there's a whole bunch of other cameras or sensors in their house that are collecting information that uh, they don't realise is connected to the web. Yes, and you'd be surprised at what is and isn't connected. Every car that's sold in America now has a 4G SIM card in it. And that, that SIM is effectively talking back to the manufacturer. So a mate of mine bought a, I think it was an Audi or something earlier in the year, and, and as soon as he started up the car, it literally dialed Audi and sent all the information back and said everything's fine. And you know they sell it to you on the provision that this is the right thing, we're giving you value, we're monitoring your car, it's all kind of cool. But it's collecting data about you, your car, and it knows the serial number and all that sort of stuff. Then I met a cyber security guy the other day who, who really freaked me out a little bit. He said that, um, Every car's got a telemetry sensor in it. Uh, they're not necessarily connected to the cloud the whole time. But anytime you go into a workshop, they download all the data from that particular car and they can plug their computers in and, and diagnose what's happening with the car. He was saying that the, that the NSA has got so good at understanding how cars are driven that they can tell from the telemetry data exactly who it was that was driving it at the time based on how they use the accelerator and brake and how they change lanes and the time of day they drive and all that sort of stuff. So again, they're using data maybe for the wrong thing, uh, or maybe the right thing. I don't know. But the, you've got to, it's eyes wide open, right? You've got to understand that all of the all of this data is already being collected, and it's just going to be a lot more. Uh, Gartner was saying in the last week or so there'll be five and a half million devices connected to the web every day from from next year, and ultimately there'll be many billions. We can't agree on how many it is, but twenty to fifty billion devices on the web within the next few years, all of which are collecting either one packet of data a month or one packet of data every second or in a millisecond. Um, and all of that's been collected somewhere on a server, somewhere to be analysed by something. Which I guess gives you also ethical dilemmas as a journalist using, you know, whether to, what data to collect in the first place, how to collect it, uh, what to do with it, whether to do anything with some of it, and also how to store it, given some of the, the hacking issues. Yeah, I mean, it's a skill set that, that journalists are going to have to develop. It's kind of like, I mean, I, I have a journalism degree. I've made it all the way through, but I've never really practiced being a journalist. 
But you know, we had to do T-line shorthand and we had to learn how to type at a certain speed. These are skills you had to do in order to get your degree. You know, today you have to have data capture, data analytics, cybersecurity skills, uh, at, even at the base level, to understand what it is to collect information. Otherwise, it will be forever hidden from you. It's not enough to, I mean, that's why things, I suppose, like WikiLeaks exist, although I think it's kind of gone off the rails a little bit of late, but effectively, that was to kind of break down those barriers of both government and, and large entities hiding everything from everybody because there are, they can spend more on their security or they can spend more on smart people to hide things. Um, so therefore, the, the journalist has to be that bit smarter themselves to find out where this stuff is and be able to get access to them themselves. Um, so I really believe that the journalists of the future absolutely have to have um, data capture, data analytic skills and cyber security skills to understand where this stuff is and how they can get a hold of it. Whether they use publicly available networks, uh, there's a thing called the Things Network that's just been started rolling out here in Sydney. It started off in, in Amsterdam and Holland, it's now being rolled out globally. These are effectively community networks of connected devices that you can use as open source, um, uh, free to a certain point, where the whole idea is it kind of circumvents the traditional telco networks. Otherwise, we'll be in a world where all of the data will flow through the same three telcos that we've always had. So what's being created now are complementary, parallel networks that are outside of the Telstra Optus of this world. And one of those is a publicly available network where today you could go and buy some sensors and you could connect it to the things network and you can get access to the data that those sensors collect. You can do that today. That's only going to scale out even more. And that is very much a social impact um, approach. The guys that founded that out of Holland did it for that very reason, so that they could build services for the benefit of the public and not wait for the government or big business to build them for them. And I, I think we're going to have similar challenges in terms of the actual software uh, behind these things with the dominance of your Amazons, Googles and Apples in, in this market. I mean, we could end up, you know, business journalists had on, give any companies a chance at an oligopoly or a monopoly and they're going to jump at it. Yeah, I, I really don't think that many government, maybe the Maybe the US and Russian governments do, Chinese government probably. But I'm not sure the Australian government really understands how much power those entities have already over our daily lives. I mean, if you are an iPhone user, you're pretty much already locked into the Apple ecosystem. I purposefully try to use multiple ecosystems, but that means I'm locked into multiple ecosystems. So my, my documents, uh, my email is inside Google, my photos and my phone is inside Apple. and you know, and I use Amazon as well. So, but to work outside of those, it's almost impossible now. I mean, and, and that raises a threat to media organisations as well, because do we become obsolete? You know, if, if at some point we can't get access as we do currently to various Google and Apple platforms, do they just take over what we currently do? Yeah, someone sent me an article this afternoon, one of my... Um, uh, a good friend of mine used to be one of the editors of News of the World. There's a, there's a brand you haven't heard for a while. Um, he, boy, has he got some great stories. But he, he sent me a, a link about, um, it was the headline was, you know, will uh, journalists be replaced by robots? Um, this kind of uh, proliferation of AI. And it was a really interesting um, article. I can't remember who wrote it, but I've got it on my email. The preface of it was that, you know, that these things are getting better. Bots are already writing the weather and they're writing sports results and those kind of and, and financial results reporting they're doing that because it's kind of standard templated bullet pointed stuff each time it's the same but on the flip side of that having worked inside newsrooms and and now working with a couple of media type startups 
that element of curation is that human curation is still the best. It is the best. I've seen, we work a lot with IBM Watson, which is probably one of the biggest cognitive AI systems in, in the world right now. And no matter how we train that thing and how, many, and how much data we throw at it, it's still not as good as a human. But the problem is that a human doesn't scale to the same levels that these guys do. So we set a challenge for IBM and we said to them, we want you to read every news article published every day in the world. And then we want you to run your algorithm across all of that and match that to all of the videos that we have in our catalogue so that we get dynamic matching to every single article written across the world. And they said, yeah, okay, good, we can do that. That's exactly what Watson's been designed to do. So there's no human on earth, doesn't matter how many warehouses of people or hotels or whatever you could fill with people could ever do that to read every single article published on the web every day and then capture the metadata within that and then make informed AI-powered kind of decisions about what's in that article and what you should match it with or something else. Although, and, interesting, one of the fall-downs of AI and, and this kind of curation is also, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out and uh, working in digital on, you know, online media, I can say that some people's uh, tagging and yeah, and also their writing styles may actually completely obscure what the article or the video is actually I about. absolutely agree. They, these concepts of, they call them concepts, and it's not just metadata keywords and all that sort of stuff anymore. It's, you have that, the classic story of is it manly or is it in manly? And we have these ideas of, you know, if President Obama is mentioned in the article, then it tends to shift. And obviously all the Trump stuff that's out there in the moment also skews everything that, you know, what's the context of it. So yes, I think that the the bots and the AI systems that are, that are powering a lot of these IoT devices are also powering the way people consume media today. They're getting better, but they're certainly not as good as a good editor is today. Could they be in the future? Well, I think that's what those companies want them to be. That's certainly what Facebook wants them to be. Um, I would argue that that's what Google wants them to be as well. Will they get there? Well, the, the PhDs that they have working for them, the thousands of them certainly believe they can be as good as, a, as an editor. I guess we should... Yeah, open it up to some questions. Uh, I don't want to dominate Stuart's knowledge. Yeah. <coughs> so you talked about the security of people's personal data and the possibilities and the risks associated with that, but what about on a national security level? What level of consideration or understanding do you think the Australian government has about the threats? I think there are key people in and around the government, certainly some of the education institutions that know that very well, but we are, and I quote the professor from UNSW who said, I think just a week or so ago, that we are woefully underprepared and woefully underinvested in, in security. It's a, it's a fact. And it's kind of a global issue, but Australia, I don't know, I was saying earlier whether it's some sort of cultural trait where we, we've always believed we're so far away so it won't affect us. But I'm sorry, we're all connected to everybody else, so it absolutely affects us. And you can see from the fact that we've already been hacked, ASIO has been hacked. Who else has been hacked? Who knows? They're not telling us. I mean, it took two years for Yahoo to tell us they got hacked. Target and, and others in the US have, you know, we're talking about millions of credit cards and personal data has been stolen already. And all of that's available for sale on the web if you know where to look. So no, I don't think that the, no, I don't think that the government understands the challenge ahead of them at all. I think that some of the guys in their kind of security arms do, but I think they're frustrated by the lack of inaction and lack of investment in it. Which is um, obvious when you start to look at how people are educated about what they should do. I mean, when it comes to the Internet of Things devices, what, ha what happened recently that kind of set all the big security debate off was that using the Shodan search engine, a certain individual or individuals 
discovered um, many thousands and thousands of, of devices that had effectively what they call um, in a kind of manufacturer level security access still installed on it. So they had passwords that were admin admin or six zeros. And so these guys were able to write some malware that they were able to install on these devices at the actual chip level, which could run a routine once they got onto the device to, to basically run a whole heap of credentials that they knew were public domain. I mean, one of these manufacturers was a camera manufacturer, you know, an internet camera, who had actually published in their help documentation the password. So, and that's not un uncommon. No, it's not my common. car manual actually. Right. The, the... So because they want to give the manufacturer a password to the home user so they can log in for the first time and change it. But what they didn't do is tell the home user to log in and change it. Nobody does, unless you're somebody like me, I suppose. But so these people plug their cameras in and off they went and hey, but they had effectively a, a thing called Telnet, which is a very simple way of getting into the back of these devices, completely open. The credentials were public domain, so they just plugged those in and, and they got access to 143,000 devices was the first one. They then got those devices to work together as a bot or a botnet to attack a particular, at this point it was a security journalist actually, Brian Krebs. They attacked his website, took that offline, and then a week later they attacked a, an ISP in France and took that offline. And then they attacked the DIN servers in the US, which is a DNS server, and they took well, they didn't take it offline, but they slowed it down dramatically. So a lot of sites in the, in the east coast of the US went very slow for half a day. And by that time, we we're at kind of 200,000 devices. Now they believe that it's over half a million devices are infected. And I just read today that the latest attack that's happening is um, a derivative of the Mirai botnet, which is the first one they use. They're now calling it botnet 14 because they've lost track of all the different names. And it's right now it's running a DDoS attack against a country on the west coast of Africa called Liberia. And um, it's taken the entire country offline. And it, to the security guys that are looking at this, they're thinking that it, it looks like a test. It looks like they're practicing for a major, another DDoS attack. So it's a long way of saying that, in this case, manufacturers were absolutely to blame. And they tried to blame their customers, which is outrageous. But now they're having to recall all those devices. They, are, they cannot flash those devices over the web. They are effectively broken. If you logged into those devices and then changed the password, too late, they'd still get in and rechange it back and, and still infect it. So that, that device has to go back to the warehouse and be melted down and start again. So there are companies like that that are out there, but you wouldn't know as a consumer. You have no idea. There are other companies out there that are really good at it that flash the devices at point of manufacture with random passwords and are very, very secure. But the, the problem is with the proliferation of these, and I, I guarantee you by this time next year or the year after, You'll have 50 of these things in your house. You probably won't even know it, right? You're just like, oh yeah, buy it. So plug it into Wi-Fi. There you go. It's all good. But any one of those could be uh, a security flaw and give them access to your home network, which then gives them access to anything else that you're running across your network. So yes, it is an element of buyer beware. But right now, the manufacturers really need to get their act together and make this a lot easier than it is today. Not not to mention the problem if you have 50 different random passwords in your house and you lose the manual. That right. That's the password. I mean, I have a, I have a password um, management system that I use, I've used for a long time. I use a thing called 1Password, which is, there's a couple of good ones out there. That's, that is, in its own right, highly encrypted uh, security, and then it randomly creates passwords for me that I then use on these other sites. But that creates a step for most people that they don't want to go through, because I cannot, for the life of you, tell you what my Twitter 
password is yeah, right. because it's 18 characters long and I never yeah. remember it ever. Yeah. Plus I have multi-factor authentication installed on it, which means that anytime I log in, it pings my phone and then I have to put the pass, the key code in. So I go to that level because I don't want anybody nicking my Twitter account or my LinkedIn account, etc. But some people don't because it's a pain in the ass, right? If you're on the phone and you've yeah. got to punch in 18 so characters, you're not going to do it. You can take Ross Coulthard's advice from the Press Freedom Dinner last year, which was uh, use mail. Old-fashioned. <laughs> it's very difficult. And so when you're inside the kind of Apple ecosystem or the Google ecosystem, they're trying to make it simpler yes, for you. Yeah. So that, you know, yeah. thank God we've got one of those and yeah. Apple's got that on their laptop now and, and there'll be others. Hey, Retina's one. Hey, yeah, there's quite a few do that. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Um, that, that's the way it's going to go as people take it more seriously. Yeah. Um, but right now, it's it's the best thing you can do is where it's available, and it's not available for everything, is set up uh, multi-factor authentication. That's the best thing you can do today. It's still not perfect, but it's a lot better than just your basic password. And you know, when I first sat down with my wife and had the conversation about cybersecurity on her phone and said, you can't use that password because I thought of it in about 30 seconds, and then gave her a password 14 characters long with you know hidden characters and stuff. She completely freaked out, but it was it was, it was not going to be a discussion had. It was like this is the password you're now going to use. And then I've made a change a couple of times since as well. But she uses one password as well. But it you know it only takes. I ran a little experiment once with my parents who are in their 70s and they have they've been using the internet for a while, but you know it's intermittent. Now mum's got a smartphone and she's, uh, she's on the Facebook and uh, loves the Facebook and she's posting on it all the time. So I was, um, I'm very negative on that for a lot of reasons. But anyway, I got, I got hold of her phone recently and I um, just ran a couple of things over it and I said, so, you know, this is what you've been talking to about for the last week. Here's all the information that you've shared. Here's all what your friends have shared and they've shared it and they've shared it. So effectively all of that information is now in the public domain. She was horrified. They just don't understand how much of that personal data they are sharing, how, how you can extrapolate the stuff that's out there and actually come up with something very concrete. There was a guy, a very famous white hat uh, security guy, who set a challenge to some of his peers and some really good hackers and said, you know, hack into my bank account. So they disappeared for a little while and came back about two days later having transferred all of the money out of his account into their own account. And even though he's a security expert. And you know, the, it's a very soft target, but the way they got around it was, it started off, they got into, um, they friended him on Facebook, and then they watched for a day or so po posting images on, they went back through his history, and they found a picture of his dog, and, with him with his dog. They zoomed into the picture of the dog and they found the dog's name on the tag around its neck. They then guessed that it was a combination of his dog's name that was the password for one of his accounts. Sure enough, it was. Um, then they got, I think they got a hold of his Twitter account. And then from his Twitter account, they got a hold of his email account. This is all happening within a couple of days. Then from all of that information, they were able to get enough information about him personally. Where they hired an actress and she got on the phone and she rang the bank and she said, this is, my, this is my husband, blah, 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 this has got this emergency and this car crash and blah, 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 tears, the whole thing. And the woman on the phone in the call center, yeah, wow. the person on the car and the, in the call center handed over the details to get into the account. They logged in the account, transferred the money out. So it was a, 
systematic thing where even a guy who's quite hardcore about security, they were able to, to break him eventually. But it's, it's quite funny because it also, it also shows that it's often a human yeah. frailty. That's, that's, that's so it wasn't the technology issue. that let him down at that point, it was the fact that someone in a call center broke with protocol. But also his human frailty in naming a password after yeah. his dog. After his dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a good story then. There are a lot of uh, leaked emails uh, involved in the presidential campaign. And uh, I was wondering uh, if in the future, if private conversations that we make around the Internet of Things like Alexa could be uh, used in the future, could be leaked and used and uh, exploited in the, in the future for journalism. Yeah, it's a real interesting um, dilemma around privacy and, and the law there. I think that, it, I guarantee you that within a year, one of these devices will be hacked so that they can record everything that happens. I mean, they've already used cases of them having, hacking Android phones for the microphones for re recording, um, recording conversations. Um, I think, you know, bringing it back to the conversation about, about journalists, clearly that would be in breach of all sorts of laws. Would there be a precedent set for some sort of court case where you could use that? I, I have no idea. I mean, it would be the same as if you had a hidden um, cassette recorder in your suit jacket when you were talking to somebody. The interesting thing is if you were able to sort of come across this data or it was leaked by a WikiLeaks type organisation and what, what you were able to do with that. Um, I do think about that actually because the concept of this device here, the Alexa, is that it is, it's listening for that keyword, but it's listening all the time. Now. I've only got Amazon's word for it that they're not recording everything and storing it in the cloud. But there are many people who are saying that the whole premise of this is that it is doing that and that's how it's learning. But it's not storing it and, not, and it's anonymized against who I am as an individual. Um, but I, I don't think it'll be long before um, the ability of these devices in the home, in the car, are effectively listening to what's going on and then you know, create something from that. Uh, well, to give you a concrete example with old tech, non-internet of things, but that relates. I mean, the ABC did a story for, must be almost 20 years ago, about possum slaughter in Tasmania, uh, which is a very famous high court case because they got leaked CCTV video from this slaughterhouse that was, you know, uh, licensed to, to kill possums for human consumption. And it was about animal cruelty. It was one of the first I think it was at Four Corners or 7.30, one of the first big investigations into animal cruelty, and they'd been leaked this CCTV video, which had come from inside the factory. And obviously these days the difference would be that you might be able, you know, a conservation group might be able to hack that video without even having an inside contact within the factory, which is presumably how they got it. But the legal ruling was that because the ABC didn't film that footage illegally because it would have been illegal for us to go in and shoot that footage trespassing on the premises. But because we didn't know how it had been taken, we could use the footage. Um, and the same with the um, Indonesian slaughterhouses, obviously that's overseas, so not applicable to the Australian law, but a lot of the, the greyhound uh, footage, anything from that that, that we didn't shoot ourselves, uh, could have been filmed trespassing or, or, or something. So it does, there are actually legal precedents with the old tech that, that do raise some questions about, you know, is the law keeping up with where this data is coming from? Uh, because certainly under the current precedents, you'd, you'd argue that if you got handed a video and you weren't the one who filmed it illegally, you probably would be able to use it.
So who, who is going to drive the other side of the message? I mean, commercial entities are obviously going to be putting the convenience factor, the wonder, rah, 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 and all the rest of it. But somebody at policy level should be, for example, teaching at kids' level. This is, this is the way of future. This is a serious cyber consideration. Most people don't know about KeyPass or whatever the, the password controls are. Why not? We should all know that. And yet, we don't. I mean, somewhere there's a big gap in security information, just basic. Before all of this hits our homes, we should actually be prepared for it, and yet nobody is doing that side of it. No, I was um, visiting my brother recently over in Perth, and he's got three kids, and uh, they're all teenagers. And I said to them, you know, what systems do you use? I'm trying to work out how to communicate with them because they won't answer my emails. Um, <laughs> and it's like, well, we don't do email. That's kind of so last century. They're like, oh, right, okay. I said, you're on Snapchat. Yes, yes. Like, okay, I can do that. I can do that. But we started talking about security and passwords and all that sort of stuff, and, and there was effectively a kind of eh, shrugging the shoulders like, it's all right, as long as I get lots of value back, I don't really care. Yes, they think about, um, they don't want untrusted people getting access to the stuff they share, which is why they like Snapchat and those types of things, because it apparently disappears, although it doesn't. So they like that, but they don't, they don't like Facebook because it's always there. They only use Facebook for groups that they lock down to their friends only. So there's like, no one's in, it's just their friends. But still there's no acknowledgement that, that Facebook still uses all that data to profile them and serve ads back, because at the end of the day, Facebook is an advertising company. Um, so no, generally, they're, they're not educated at school about passwords. They're not educated at school about changing passwords and what that really means. And they have they, you know, what you call the data, data natives now, who expect that for handing over their data, they will get a lot of value in return. And so far, these big companies are providing exactly that because they're very, very smart. A lot smarter than any government entity is going to be. I had a laugh with my accountant yesterday because in order to change the ABN details on my company, I have to log into this thing called OzKey and MyGov. And oh my God, it's like, really? That's the best that Australia can do is build that thing? It's just the most deplorable website I've ever seen in my life. And so I went and, and if said, you have any problems with it, you just try getting through to the actual fine line <laughs> to fix it, you know. And I emailed him back and I went, geez, that OzKey MyGov thing is the rabbit hole to hell, isn't it? And he just turned back a smiley face. He's like, thanks, dude. I mean, so I still haven't managed. I've been trying for a day now to actually get it to work. I don't know what I'm meant to do. But I'm looking at this going, I've been building websites since 1995. I, this is what I do. And I still don't get it. I mean, and that's, that's God help us really. That's but the I, best we could come up with. I mean, the interesting thing about that question is even in old tech, there's a, a lack of knowledge. So as I was saying, Ross Coulthard did an amazing press freedom presentation uh, about 18 months ago and, and most journalists, their eyes totally lit up when he was talking about how if you've got a public service source, for instance, and you publish an article from this secret source, uh, and you might have got the, the physical documents via their private Gmail from their home computer, so no link to the work account or whatever, but the first time they rang you, they rang you off their work phone. Straight away, they're busted uh, because of the phone records that the public service has of which extensions call to. Or in one case, uh, even ringing from a public phone booth, but they track down which public servants who would have had access to that information lived near that public phone booth. And the, the, the guy was dismissed uh, as a result of that. So even it's, a, it's not just a new tech problem, but it just you know, it gets exponentially worse with the amount of things that are now trackable.
You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. Stuart Waite, our speaker, wrote an article for the Walkley magazine about how the Internet of Things will change the news business. It's on the Walkley website. If you want to go to future Friday events like these, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. The next one will be in January. They're across Australia. What else? Uh, we just announced the annual finalists for the Walkley Awards. Winners will be announced December 2nd. You can subscribe to the Walkley Talks podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud. Walkley Talks is produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. And this episode was edited by Nina Kopel. Till next time.